0: Okay, um, hello, good afternoon everybody and welcome to UCL Minds Lunch Hours Lectures. Uh, My name is Hannah Cornish, I am one of the curators responsible for the UCL Pathology Museum and Science Collections and it is my very great pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Katie Davenport-Mackey. Katie is one of the UCL Culture Museum Visitor Services assistants, she is an archaeologist a historian and a museum professional, um, and she has a particular interest in medical history. Um, Katie was previously an historical interpreter at one of the oldest surviving operating theatres in Europe. Um, In her lecture today, Any Museum Heart, Cardiology Through the Ages at UCL, Katie is going to be taking a lighthearted look at the history of cardiology um, for over 4,000 years from ancient Egypt right through to modern times. Um, and she'll be bringing that history to life using the objects from all of the UCL museums. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Katie who will tell us more.
1: Ah, well, thank you for introducing me to everybody. Can everybody hear me all right? Yep, fantastic. <laughs> uh, well, uh, As Hannah was saying, my name is Katie Katie Davenport Mackey, and I am a Museum Visitor Services Assistant at UCL Culture. And this means I have the opportunity and the privilege to investigate some of the rich collections we have across our museums. So we're going to begin in the Petrie Museum and Ancient Egypt. The reason for this is that ancient Egyptian civilization uh, produced some of the earliest known anatomical representations of the human heart, and this is one of them, uh, this is an amulet. It comes from the city of Amarna, which was the capital city of the pharaoh Akhenaten, who was famously the husband of Nefertiti and the father of Tutankhamun. So it dates from a period called the New Kingdom. So it's around 3,500 years Old, And it gives us a remarkable insight into the ancient Egyptians' understanding of the circulatory system. And it does that quite surprisingly through these little bumps on the side. These are part of a network of channels uh, that originated in the heart and were believed to terminate in the anus. Uh, they were collectively known as metu. So the ancient Egyptians did not distinguish between veins, arteries, nerves, tendons. Anything tube-like in the body was classified as metu. And what was the purpose of these? Well, they transport liquids around the body. Um, they transport blood. They also transport air. And uh, unfortunately for people eating in the audience, urine and faeces. They also transport disease around the body. And uh, the Egyptians had quite a unique understanding of what disease was. They believed that it accumulated in these vessels over a lifetime, and it was responsible for ageing, sickness and death. And uh, this understanding really influenced their practices in both life and death. In life, they believed that pus was the physical manifestation of disease. They also uh, believed that these noxious, uh, these poisonous fluids within the body needed to be removed to restore health. And they did this primarily through purges and enemas. Uh, As I said, uh, their understanding also influenced uh, their practices of death and mummification. And uh, in our next object, we can see that in mummification, the intestines, the stomach, the liver and the lungs would be removed uh, through an incision in the left side of the abdomen. And they would be placed in canopic Jars. In this example, uh, we have uh, a representation of one of the four sons of Horus. So, this is a deity that guards the organ inside the jar. This one is Kebesenuef, and he is the hawk and he guards the intestines. There was also the jackal, Duamutef, who guarded the stomach. Uh, There was Imseti, the human, who guarded the liver. And there was Happy, the baboon, who guarded the lungs. So, the ancient Egyptians, uh, the heart was incredibly important to them. Um, It was the centre of emotions and memory. And as we can see in this... uh, This pectoral, this necklace, uh, it was important for the afterlife. So this is, as I said, a pectoral. It comes from a pyramid builder's town called Garob. Um, So it's around uh, 3,500 years old. And well, what's happening in it? We can see uh, over here The deceased is being led by the god Anubis before the god Osiris, who sat here enthroned. And in the centre here, we have a scale. And this is for the weighing of the heart. So in the afterlife, your heart would be weighed if it was found to be light and you'd lived a virtuous life. You could proceed to the afterlife if it was found to be heavy. Uh, Unfortunately, your heart would be consumed by this waiting monster here, Amut. And Amut was a third crocodile, a third hippopotamus, and a third lion. So everything the ancient Egyptians feared. Luckily, there was a way to escape this fate. And this was through a heart Garub. So this one, uh, once again, it comes from this pyramid builder's town called Garob. So it's around 3,500 years old. And as you can see in this picture, there are six lines of horizontal text. Uh, they're read from left to right. And they contain a personal name, Alf and they also contain a spell, a spell from the Book of the Dead. Uh, it's spell 30B, and these are instructions to help you pass the Weighing of the Heart ceremony. And this is the spell. Uh, this is Flinders Petrie's translation uh, from his 1914 book, Amulets. So what's going on in here? Well, this is entreating the heart not to weigh down the balance and not to testify against the deceased to the keeper of the balance. Uh, The keeper of the balance was a goddess called Matt and she represented order and justice in the universe and the heart would be weighed against her feather. So, The practice of mummification uh, declined through time uh, as Egypt came into contact with different cultures, uh, the Greek, the Roman, um, the Islamic, so it gradually faded away. But what remained was this concept of disease, this concept of disease as being these fluids, these internal, uh, poisonous, noxious substances that needed to be removed. And this would eventually morph into the medieval doctrine of the four humours. And that's what we'll go on to next. The ancient Egyptians had quite a superficial understanding of the anatomy of the heart. Uh, Medieval people had a slightly more sophisticated Uh, understanding. And we're going to explore that through this painting. Uh, It comes from the UCL Art Museum. It's not medieval. Uh, It was made around 1830 uh, by Charles Bell, who was Professor of Physiology and Surgery at University College London. And uh, this remarkable painting comes from uh, his dissections, and he would use these uh, images in his lectures. So it's kind of like the original PowerPoint. Bell himself, he conducted important research on the working of the nervous system, and he became a surgeon at Middlesex Hospital. Um, The Middlesex Hospital eventually (coughs) merged with University College Hospital and the Royal Free Hospital to become the UCL Medical School, and we'll talk more about that later. So, medieval understandings of the heart. They understood the heart was surrounded by the pericardium, so this protective coating. This has been removed in this dissection, uh, but they also understood that the heart consisted of four chambers. So at the top, there were two atria that would fill with blood and underneath two ventricles that would expel blood. They also understood the position of some of the great vessels of the heart. So they recognised the aorta, uh, being the largest artery in the body. They also recognised uh, the pulmonary vein and the pulmonary artery, uh, which transports blood through the lungs, where it's oxygenated and releases carbon dioxide. And this is what we can see in this picture. So this is the superior and the inferior right pulmonary artery, pulmonary vein. <laughs> so. Uh, They also recognised the vena cava, which is the largest vein within the body. Uh, So as well as having a more elaborate understanding of anatomy, they had a more elaborate understanding of circulation. And uh, they believed that the liver had the power to produce blood. And it also produced something called natural spirit. And this was distributed uh, through the vena cava and through the veins uh, to all parts of the body. Now, some of that blood would enter the uh, right atria and the right ventricle. And here, there were two options of what could happen. So some of that would uh, nourish the lungs. It would go to the lungs and supply them with blood. Some, however, would move from the right ventricle to the left ventricle through imaginary invisible pores in the septum, separating the ventricles. Once in the left ventricle, it would meet up with a substance called vital spirit. So this vital spirit came from the pulmonary vein, from the lungs and from the air. And it was created with a substance called pneuma. Uh, So pneuma, air, spirit. And uh, this with blood would flow out of the aorta through the rest of the body, supply the rest of the body. (coughs) Oh, but it doesn't end there. So (laughs) now some of that blood would move up to the brain through the carotid arteries and it would make a final substance called animal spirit, and this would be distributed around the body in nerves. So I said quite a elaborate understanding of circulation, not entirely correct, <laughs> uh, but we can see how this ancient Egyptian... Well, we're going to see how this ancient Egyptian idea of fluids, different fluids within the body, really uh, developed and became elaborated. In fact, it morphed into the doctrine of the four humours, which actually endured until the 19th century uh, before it was replaced with the germ theory of disease. But more on that later. So uh, let's talk about the four humours. What are they have been talking about them a lot. They are four fluids that make up the human body. They are blood, black bile, yellow bile and phlegm. And they are so associated with a number of elements that make up the universe. So, uh, blood was associated with earth, um, phlegm with air, um, the black bile with fire and the yellow bile with water. And they were also say associated with different organs. So we have uh, the liver, the brain, the gallbladder and the spleen. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, they're also associated with temperaments or personality characteristics. And uh, these are the sanguine, the phlegmatic, the melancholic and the choleric. And the medieval understanding was that disease in the body was caused by an imbalance of these humours. And this could be treated in a number of ways uh, through purging, starving, vomiting, and bloodletting. So there are a number of different ways of bloodletting. Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about the medicinal leech or Herudo Medicinalis. So uh, this is not actually, uh, this is a cast of the digestive tract of a leech. And it comes from the Grant Museum. And you can probably see it's composed of three major regions. So we have the pharynx, the crop, and the intestinum. So, and they perform at like, different functions. So at the top here, just behind the jaws, we have the pharynx. This area here, lined with these bladders, this is the crop, and this removes water from the blood meal. And this tiny little bump here, that is the intestinum, and that's where the majority of digestion takes place. Now, this unique anatomy enables the leech uh, to consume up to five times its weight in blood, and go, between, uh, go six months between feedings. So medieval people, they were capable uh, of quite simple operations. Uh, some of them could be quite invasive, uh, but they were held back. Uh, the whole ancient world was held back surgically by two main things. One was the excruciating pain of surgical procedures, and the second was life-threatening infections. Now, throughout the 19th century, scientists would develop um, they would discover antisept- um, antiseptics, um, and they would discover anesthetic. Uh, and I'm very happy to say that UCL was at the heart of both discoveries. <laughs> so up until the 19th century, here we go. So UCL. Uh, It was founded uh, in 1826 and opened its doors to students in 1828. Uh, It had quite a unique approach to education at the time uh, because it very much focused on a scientific and secular curriculum. Uh, It tended to focus on mathematics, the physical sciences, medicine, engineering and philosophy. Uh, And as some of you probably know, it became, for this reason, it became known as the godless institution in Gower Street. (laughs) Uh, Medical students at UCL were particularly fortunate uh, when in 1834, University College Hospital opened specifically to provide them with training. And one of the uh, most inventive professors at uh, University College Hospital was Robert Liston. Uh, So he was professor of clinical surgery and he was responsible for the first public demonstration of the anaesthetic ether in the UK. And that took place on the 21st of December 1846. Uh, The patient's name was Frederick Churchill. He was a butler. He was 36 years old and he was suffering from osteomyelitis, so infection of the leg bone. Uh, He was brought in to University College Hospital on a stretcher. He was laid on a table. And it was actually a UCL medical student, William Squire, who administered the anaesthetic. He placed a tube in his mouth, held his fingers over his nostrils until he became unconscious. Then Robert Liston brought out one of the straight amputation knives that he had invented. And there's three of them here. Um, now, I'm going to confess, uh, these, uh, this collection of amputation tools comes from the Welcome Collection just round the corner. Uh, we do supposedly have 42 surgical tools that Robert Liston owned, uh, but they're, they're a bit of an oddity. They're a strange collection, and there is no Liston knife. So I hope the Welcome Collection will forgive me. So he pulled out this straight amputation knife. He had actually invented a new technique of amputation, uh, which used flaps of skin uh, to cover the limb stump. So this is what he would do. He would cut an upper flap and a lower flap, hold back these flaps of skin, get out his amputation saw, and remove the leg, all in under 28 seconds. After this process had been completed, uh, he would tie the femoral artery, so the main artery in the thigh that supplies blood to the leg, uh, with an instrument called a tenaculum, which is a hook There's one here, for picking up arteries. Um, He'd then tie off the artery with a ligature. Uh, Once he completed that, he tied off between five and six more vessels using artery forceps, something else he had invented. Told you he was prolific. Uh, So these are the artery forceps here. And after that, he dressed the stump with a uh, a wet uh, piece of lint and thank goodness the operation was over. So what does all that have to do with cardiology? Well, he probably didn't realise it at the time, but this anaesthesia would enable the surgical treatment of cardiac and thoracic disease. Also unbeknown to him in the audience that day was one Joseph Lister, who was also a medical student at UCL. So Joseph Lister, he, Uh, fell under the influence of a number of different academics at UCL. He was friends with William Sharpie, who was Professor of Anatomy and Physiology. Uh, And he was the first person to introduce the practical study of histiology into education. Uh, So what he did is, I find this rather remarkable, he uh, would take a uh, microscope like this, uh, he would, it would have its own independent light source and he put them on a railway track to enable his students, who were sat down, much like yourselves, to examine slides, microscopic slides of healthy and diseased tissue. And this uh, really inspired Joseph Lister to start thinking about germs, microbes, bacteria. Um, he also was influenced by another UCL professor, John Eric Erickson. Um, great name. Uh, he was uh, a surgeon at University College Hospital and he lectured extensively on what was known as hospitalism. So, hospitalism is hospital acquired infections. And there was a trio of them that plagued the hospitals of the 19th century. One is gangrene, which was necrosis or um, decomposition of tissue uh, because of either loss of circulation or bacterial infection. Uh, Another one was Uh, Erisipalis, which is an infection of the upper layer of the skin. It's a bit like cellulitis, uh, which is an infection of the lower level of the skin. It's characterised by a bright red rash. And the third one, but you can't wait for this. The third one was pyemia, which is a form of blood poisoning or septicemia, and it's characterised uh, by the invasion of bacteria into the bloodstream, uh, which produces these uh, quite horrible abscesses in different organs. So, at this time, around 46% of patients were dying from these infections. So, this intrigued Lister. Unusually for the time, uh, he did not subscribe to the uh, theory of the four humours or the miasma theory, different theories that were floating around. No, he believed in the germ theory of disease, uh, which had conclusively proved that it was bacteria, fungi, viruses that were responsible for disease. So he sought a way to kill them. And he heard from a colleague about uh, some carbolic acid, which was being used to treat sewage uh, in Carlisle. And he obtained a sample. And he used it on the 12th of August, 1865, on a young boy, an 11-year-old boy called James Green leaves. Uh, he had a compound fracture of the tibia, so the leg bone had penetrated the skin and uh, had become um, infected. Well, had the possibility of becoming infected. So what he did, he applied undiluted carbolic acid to the wound. Uh, he covered it in tin foil to stop it evaporating, and then he splinted the leg. Unusually for the time, uh, the blood and carbolic acid formed a protective crust and there was no infection. Four days later, when the dressing was removed and reapplied. What he did notice was that the skin had been burnt by the carbolic acid. So, four days later, he applied a dressing with diluted carbolic acid and olive oil. And six weeks later, James Greenlees walked out of hospital. So, Lister then experimented with all sorts of antiseptic precautions, um, including hand washing, sterilizing instruments, even spraying carbolic acid in the operating theater. Uh, This is a carbolic acid spray. uh, And you can see that at the top here, water would have boiled it would turn to steam and it would force carbolic acid from this chamber upwards. That would meet the steam and then you'd be able to spray it through some tubing, which is now missing, into the air. Uh, Since this time, uh, we've sort of changed from antiseptic procedures to aseptic procedures, but all sorts of things have come into being. hands, gloves, face masks for surgeons, eye protection, gowns, uh, sterilising instruments, cleaning them. Um, And from this, this really made uh, cardiac and thoracic surgery not only possible, but survivable. And this really opened an explosion of possibilities, starting with surgery on the pericardium. So, the wall of the heart has three layers Um, have the epicardium, uh, which is sort of the uh, top layer of the myocardium, and the endocardium. And covering all this in a thin layer is the pericardium. So, here we have an example of pericarditis. This is inflammation of the heart. And you can see this sort of fibrous tissue um, that. It actually tends to contract over time and it compresses the heart and stops it filling normally. So, the solution to this at the time would be a pericardioctomy. So, you would remove, remove, uh, surgically remove some or all of the pericardium. This became closed-heart surgery over time. Uh, so this was surgery on the beating heart. And one of the main operations was uh, to correct heart valve disease. So this is when the valves don't work properly. So there are four valves within the heart. Um, there's the, on one side that we have, well, on the left side, we have the um, aortic valve and the mitral valve. And on the right, you have the pulmonary valve. and the transcuspid valve. So, here we go. Uh, So in this heart, we can see just where this square is. Um, It's an example of mitral stenosis. So the valves, uh, they can become damaged, uh, they can become narrow, and uh, blood flow can be disrupted if they don't open or close properly. And this is what's happened um, in these next examples so these are known as rheumatic vegetations so they come from um, they they are an infection uh, that has taken hold in, and this is the mitral valve here and you see these little little tiny bumps so on to the next slide this is this is the mitral stenosis so this the healing of these little bumps uh, can cause the mitral valve to thicken and it's to narrow. And this is what's happened here. So this disrupts the blood flow to the heart. Um, And the solution to this at the time was a closed mitral valvotomy. And I find this rather amazing. So the surgeon operating completely by feel would insert their finger through uh, the left atrial appendage. They would stick their finger into the mitral valve. The other end of the heart, in the ventricles, they would stick a dilator, uh, so a metal instrument, until they could feel it with their finger, and then they would widen the mitral valve. This would eventually lead to open open heart surgery. Uh, And once again, UCL played an important role Uh, Between 1910 and 1914, Ernest Starling, who is Professor of Physiology, uh, experimented with the heart-lung preparation. So this is uh, what we call an extracorporeal circuit. Um, Once again, we've got one of these amazing paintings by Charles Bell. who happened to give the inaugural speech at the opening of UCL um, on the 1st of October, 1828. Uh, So this is another one of his amazing paintings. So here we have a close-up of the heart. So this is the left ventricle. And uh, what Ernest Starling did is he inserted a tube into the aorta, which diverted blood through this extracorporeal circuit outside the body. And this would, the left ventricle here would pump blood up to an elevated blood reservoir, and gravity would actually pull blood out of that reservoir um, into the vena cava. And this really demonstrated the potential uh, for extracorporeal circulation to permit open heart surgery if a satisfactory heart lung machine could be invented. Now, pumps for um, a heart-lung machine, so you need a pump and you need an oxygenator, not just a reservoir. Uh, The pump uh, was quite straightforward. They used something called a Dale-Schuster pump, uh, which pumps rhythmically in time with the heart. The oxygenator, on the other hand, was a bit more difficult. It eventually settled on a filming oxygenator, but there's all sorts of different types. Um, A rotating drum, there's vertical screens, there's rotating discs. But on the 6th of May, 1953, open-heart surgery using a heart-lung machine was accomplished. Um, This really enabled modern cardiac surgery as we know it. So we could replace valves, Repair them, repair damaged areas of the heart, implant medical devices so the heart can beat normally, and even replace the damaged heart um, with a donated one. So, really, uh, I really want to encourage you to explore the collections at UCL and uh, come and visit the museums and see some of these incredible objects that illustrate cardiology through the ages. Thank you very much.
0: Wow, thank you so much, Katie. How fascinating. Um, So we've got time for a few questions, if anyone would like to ask... Yes, if anyone would like to ask Katie any questions. there are some microphones up the top. So if you've got a question, could you put your hand up and then wait for the microphone to come? Hello, Katie. Thank you. That was great. Um, Could you tell me what made you interested in particularly talking about hearts across the collections?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, a number of different reasons. Um, some, some go back longer than others. Um, my mother, who had sat in the audience, uh, <laughs> was a nurse and inspired me as a child uh, with various different medical stories. Uh, Later on I just happened to fall into working into medical museums as uh, Hannah mentioned and uh, at UCL I heard about an exhibition that took place in the pathology museum around Valentine's Day a few years ago um, on their quite enormous collection of hearts and uh, this really intrigued me. I thought oh I could I could do something like this but perhaps broaden it out. Uh, We have object-based learning to do with cardiology that utilizes the pathology collection, also utilizes the art collection, Uh, but really I wanted to go back further than that into into medieval ideas and into ancient Egyptian ideas of cardiology.
0: Great, thank you. Any more questions? Uh, Yep, in the middle there.
1: Hi, Katie. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any heart or cardiology related objects in the collections that you really wanted to include or you found particularly interesting, but didn't make it in to the lecture in the end? Yes, there are a few. This is why I was uh, really fortunate to produce an accompanying trail uh, for this lecture. There were a few examples in the Grant Museum. We have... uh, a freeze-dried elephant heart, uh, which I couldn't really fit it in to the medieval understanding of cardiology. I understand that Galen uh, did a dissection of an elephant uh, but couldn't quite fit it in. Uh, There's also some fantastic sketches in the art museum by Joseph Lister. Uh, The closest one I could find uh, that related to sort of a, a cardiology topic was a sketch he did of the uh, internal thoracic artery, uh, which supplies the pericardium. Uh, but once again, uh, didn't quite quite fit, uh, but I would have loved to include them, but they are in the trail that accompanies the lecture.
0: <laughs> and uh, did everyone receive a copy of the trail as they came in? I hope so. (laughs) So This looks good. This looks promising. Okay. um, any more questions? Uh, Yes, in the blue jumper, hi. Oh, could you wait for the microphone, please? It's just coming down the stairs behind you. OK. What was
1: happening around the rest of Europe?
0: (laughs) Oh, yes, at the time.
1: Good good question. Yeah, so in in the 19th century, uh, Europe tended to be in advance of the UK, um, especially Germany. They prioritised scientific, so we'd call it pre-clinical, I guess now, pre-clinical medical education uh, in a way that Britain didn't really do. Uh, So lots of... Surgeons in the UK would go on tours of Europe to learn from them, especially in physiology. Uh, But yeah, they, um, like I said, especially Germany, uh, far in advance of us. Also, Uh, highlighting Germany a bit here, Uh, they adopted Joseph Lister's antiseptic techniques before we did. Uh, We were quite hesitant to adopt them. Uh, They were adopted in Germany, in Europe, in America, before they were here. So we were maybe a little bit behind the times.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. Um, I think time for one more question. Does anyone else have a question? OK, well, oh, yes.: When was the first heart
1: lung machine?: Oh,: um, for, for yep. success to be successful. The first successful was sixth, the 6th of May, 1953. It was operated um, in the U.S. So, nothing to do with UCL. So, it, it didn't, didn't, get, didn't get much of a look in. <laughs> I chose to focus on Ernest Starling, who really preempted it.
0: OK, brilliant. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been fascinating. <laughs> and um, yes, please do visit the UCL museums and um, have a look at the objects for yourselves.